4: Dublin After Dark, what Guardi policing our streets are facing amid rising anti-social behaviour. We react to our documentary tonight.
1: It's very worrying to see that assaults on Guardi have increased and of course for us in AGSI what we worry about is that society becomes tolerant of that kind of behaviour.
4: The President apologises about a throwaway remark that's caused a political stir. Taoiseach says our military neutrality is safe.
0: We need to beef up our own uh, defence forces and we also need to work out how we can cooperate with European and other partners, uh, but military neutrality is safe.
4: And later, former Minister Pat Carey on that Garda apology over a leak to the media. Do join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight VMTV. have warned that bureaucracy and a shortage of members is stopping them from being able to do their job. Dublin After Dark a documentary just broadcast on Virgin Media One tonight looked at the challenges facing gardaí as incidents of antisocial behaviour in Dublin city centre increased.
5: Well I'm joined by... what I know from looking outside the window is that the war on drugs is not working. You can buy, sell and take drugs openly.
4: Well, I'm joined by Finafoil TD Jim O'Callaghan, Sinn Fein TD Louise O'Reilly, Ronan Claher from the Association of Garda Sergeants and Inspectors, former Garda Inspector Tony Gallagher, Tom O'Connor from the National Bus and Rail Workers Union, and on Skype this evening by Anshul Motra, a victim of crime on Dublin's Lewis. You're all very welcome to the programme. Um, Jim, you saw the documentary. What's your reaction? What did you think?
6: Well, I thought in the first instance it was a very good documentary. I think yourselves deserve to be uh, commended for it. Uh, I suppose what it did do, it gave a very good impression as to what it's like to be a Garda working on the beat in Dublin city centre after dark. Unfortunately, none of it was a surprise to me, I regret to say. And I also regret to say that some of the instances we, we saw would be instance that you'd see before dark as well. And you just had Stephen Kennedy on there from the coffee shop in Aston Key. I met Stephen a number of months ago down in his coffee shop. But like his complaint was he's just set up a new business and there was open drug dealing going on outside his shop in Aston Key from nine o'clock in the morning onwards. and anyone who So it had... wasn't
4: just challenges to the guardie, no, was it? It was no. challenges to businesses in Dublin City Centre and challenges to those who work on public transport. That was to the forefront of this documentary too.
6: Absolutely. And, like, you know, myself and Fianna have been calling for a while that we need a separate, designated a public transport unit within An Garda and like, we keep been calling on the Garda Commissioner to do that, we haven't got the answer we want from him, but if that keeps on going, what we're going to see happening is that the Iraqis is going to try and resolve this issue itself by doing what they did in the UK, and I don't want to see this, where they have a separate statutory British Transport Police, which is separate from the police force. But unfortunately what's going to happen in Ireland if we don't get that Garda unit within An Garda is that the Iraqis is going to decide itself that we're going to have to go off and enact legislation to establish a separate public transport police unit that will put effective policing on the buses and on the trains. Because I've been down at NBRU conferences, I've listened to Tom, I've listened to Dermot O'Leary, I've listened to the bus drivers and train drivers. You know, they get a harrowing time and we've got to protect them. And unfortunately, one of the evidence is that's apparent now is that people seem to think when they're on public transport it's the one place where they won't meet a guard. It's the one place where they won't be apprehended.
4: Um, I want to actually come back to that issue and discuss the need for transport um, police. But first, Louise, I want to get your I suppose reaction and your impression from the documentary because as somebody who watched it myself, you'd think Dublin just doesn't feel that safe. I don't know how comfortable
7: I would be in Dublin city centre. Is that accurate? Well, as someone who regularly uses public transport, I can certainly sympathise with the men and women who are working on it, the people who are trying to keep the peace on it, and uh, indeed the passengers, because there's, it was very, very obvious um, that we do need uh, a dedicated unit within Angarda Siakana. And I, I appreciate what Jim is saying, and I understand that he supports that. They didn't put a shilling of it uh, towards it in their budget, and so you know we know the government, we know how serious they are by their actions. So they didn't allocate any money to it. I think that's very regrettable because I actually do think we need that. I wouldn't like to think that Dublin City Centre uh, is unsafe, but I'm going to tell you, I I would feel unsafe in parts of it. Absolutely, and I think that what people want to see and what really came across from the documentary, and fair play to, to Sean and all of the people who worked on it, what really came across was that the Gardaí want to be out doing their work. They want to be not chained to their desk. They don't want to be uh, a slave to ticking boxes and filling forms. They want to be out doing the work that they're paid to do, that they're trained to do. And I am they, conscious they that Leo Bradger
4: said, look, we shouldn't be scaring people into thinking... You said this recently that ireland isn't a safe country comparatively it is yes
7: yes and there is a difference between being safe and feeling safe but i'm going to tell you if you don't feel safe well then that difference is going to be lost on you because the men and women who are working on our public transport the men and women who are working in our accident and emergency departments the people who are on the front line of this they will tell you that at times they do not feel safe but the thing that exposes them and makes them unsafe is short staffing and low staffing levels. So I know I represented nurses for years, they will tell you when the staffing levels in A&E drop, well then assaults will increase. And the same is true of other professions. So we do need to see more Guardi. We also need to see the government. It, it, it amazes me they don't seem a bit curious about why members of Angarda Shiakana are either leaving, uh, resigning, or indeed uh, why they cannot fill, uh, fill the places that are there. There needs to be a really deep look at that, and you'll only get that by talking directly to the Guardie themselves and to the representative groups.
4: Uh, some people might say, Tom, that one of the reasons that the guardi are finding it difficult to recruit is because when you look at a documentary like that, why would a Guardie want to subject themselves to that sort of uh, abuse on a daily basis, it would appear? Um, and your members too. One of the stats that, that stood out for me was 429 assaults on bus drivers in the last last five years, 3,000 complaints of antisocial behaviour, 7,000 on the Lewis. But you said this is a gross understatement. Most of them aren't actually reported.
8: That's correct, Kieran. I mean, as I said in the documentary, there's an apathy there and this sort of behaviour has become normalised. So when there's there's verbal abuse, when there's, there's minor attacks and when there's drug taken, it's just ignored because it's become part of everyday society, it's happening everywhere, it's, it's on the buses, it's on the trains. How uh, frequent is it, would you say? Is it a daily it's, it's thing? It's constant, yeah, it's, it's constant. And I mean, there is an issue there, I mean, the, uh, public transport is a part of society, but the people that work in and the people that use it need to be protected. And if there's an issue with garda on the numbers, as Louise has said there, that has to be, it has to be investigated as a matter of urgency. So when you say there's
4: an apathy, and you said that in the documentary, you're saying it again tonight, who's showing apathy?
8: Well, there's there's an apathy out there because nobody seems to care, nobody's doing anything. The people I represent in in buses and trains are sick of being target practice. Mm -hmm. And and, and there's lots of words spoken uh, about solving the problems, uh, transport police promises, and there's nothing materialising. So they get fed up reporting it because nobody's doing anything. And... There's no guards. I mean, people, just, a, a, a man, 28-year service, just jacked in the job because of two assaults. Only there recently. Just need three decades on the buses. And just gave it, gave it up. But he just said, this isn't worth it anymore. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not putting up with that. I don't want to come to work to have mm-hmm. someone throw dicks at me and, 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 and attack me violently.
4: Uh, Tony, we've heard, I think, from bus drivers before like, that, that they feel like there's certain areas in Dublin that are no-go areas that they don't feel safe. I think there's certain routes that they've said they're not comfortable working. Do guards feel like that too, that there's certain no-go areas out there?
0: I wouldn't say that at all. No, uh, the, the Gardaí would never admit uh, that there's a no-go area. But what was interesting about the programme there this evening was I did my interview outside the GPO on O'Connell Street, mm-hmm. which is a national symbol of the founding of the nation. And when you have visitors visiting Dublin to tune of 100 million people, which was the figures for last year. It was 110 million pre-COVID. So they must uh, internationally identify with that and come back and kind of say that Dublin is a safe place. Now, what's welcome is the opening of the new Garda station on O'Connell Street. That's certainly welcome. It offers a refuge for for people there if they're in um, some difficulty. But what I would encourage, and, you know, you saw a lot of the programme there tonight, there was actually some Garda getting support from public order units. So I would and the retail people that I uh, represent, I would very much support um, a strong recruitment drive. And having spent 38 years... I think, in
4: fairness, the government would say there is a strong recruitment drive Target, I I think it's for 1,000 recruits this year, whether they make that or not is another thing.
0: And I spent 38 years in the Gardaí myself, and I must say, um, it's not all bad. There are just the vitriolic situations there with protests, all these type of policing as well. But it's not all bad, and the public... Hugely appreciated the Gardi. There's a 90% trust in on Garda Shikana in a public attitude survey, and retailers are interested in seeing a strong Garda presence. And we can only achieve that by encouraging everybody to kind of say that recruitment is uh, into the Garda Shikana. Is a worthwhile job.
4: But it was so clear, Ronan, in a lot of the clips that were played in the documentary that the guards were seen, by, I'm sure there's a minority of society, as the enemy. You could see that in how they interacted and communicated with people, calling them pigs and all sorts of names. There was no respect shown. Where has that gone? When did that change? And why do you think?
5: Well, absolutely. The respect is, is, is long gone from Gardaí Kona. That's actually not a new thing that's been going on for a number of years now. Um, I suppose... What do you put
4: that down to? I'd be interested in your insight into that.
5: Um, I, well, uh, a number of factors, I, I, I suppose. Uh, what's happening is, I suppose, behaviour is not being detected and there's not enough guards on the street to deal with uh, criminals or anti-social behaviour. And what's happening is this behaviour is getting normalised and... Um, Uh, people are coming up and abusing guards. Uh, They're putting mobile phones in their faces and then they're putting this uh, footage, uh, taking it out of context and putting it up on social media, Mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, and there is no comeback. um, There's no protection Mm -hmm. for the guard from this. Uh, They're going into the Guard Ombudsman Commission and making a complaint more with any interaction with the Guard of Shea And what's happening now, and particularly with young guards out on the street, is guards are afraid to do their job because there's excessive um, oversight on an Garda corner at the moment.
4: And that's what Antoinette was talking about in the documentary, yes. Cunningham, that they're becoming more risk-averse. Is that what you mean? Uh,
5: absolutely, yes. Uh, totally risk-averse. When a guard arrives at an instant now, it's not as it used to be. The first thing, how can I help this person? How can I help this member of the public? It's how, how can I... Uh, stay out of trouble here myself.
4: Um, Gavin Riley, our our, um, political correspondent, was tweeting this evening that the Cabinet has agreed that they will tender for body cams finally for the Gardaí. Will that make a big difference, do you think?
5: Body cameras are very welcome and we have been calling for these for a long long time. Mm -hmm. And the sooner that the body cameras are in place, the better. And that will give some protection to guard the Shia corner It's also a deterrent for criminals. And it's also a protection for the members of the public as well. So we would very much welcome body cameras as soon as possible.
4: Um, one thing that Jim mentioned there was the lack of a transport police in this yeah. country. That Fianna Fáil have been calling for this for some time. And for some reason, the Garda Commissioner, the guards, they do not seem to be able to create this unit. There's a reluctance there and that they might legislate to do so. Do you understand mm-hmm. why that unit hasn't been created?
5: Yeah, well, we are on record in supporting our colleagues in the MBRU that uh, a dedicated transport police is a good thing and we can clearly see from your documentary tonight that it is badly needed. However, we have to be real, uh, uh, real here and the reality is the Garda numbers are now at 13, uh, approximately 13,950. That is um, a serious reduction in gather numbers, and there is a crisis in the gather The last time we were at a number similar to that was 2007, that and was our six, population
4: uh, that, has increased significantly since then. Yeah, that, that was
5: 13,750 in 2007. 16 years and a 20% increase in population.
4: Yeah. So, Jimmy McCullen, is it fair? to have made the comment you made at the beginning here, that you know, it might be up to the Iraqis here to step in and legislate and force the Garda Commissioner or the Guards to create this unit, when, as Ronan and I think the GRA mentioned in the documentary as well, the numbers aren't there. They don't have the resources. It's not a, re- a reluctance to set up this unit. It's actually just a practical yeah, problem. They don't have the numbers, I think, the it is fair,
6: I think it is fair to make the comment I made, but I'm fully aware of the recruitment and retention crisis we have within An Garda Síochána. And as Ronan was saying, like, we're down to less than 14,000 members of vanguardia, the sworn members, which is similar to what it was in 2007. And our population has now gone up from what was 4.5 million then up to about 5.2 million now. So we need to start looking innovatively at how we're going to keep numbers up because it's going to get worse for us unless we come up with some new ideas. We've but got why? Money.
4: I suppose at this stage the horse is kind of bolted. The numbers are down at thirteen thousand. It's going to take quite we've a long time a, to rec- bring the numbers recruit, back up to where they need to be.
6: Campaign. One thing we could do: guards are compulsorily required to retire at sixty. We lose, you know, great guards like Tony here at sixty years of age. We should be giving the option of Guardi to stay on till they're 63, 64. That would deal with a lot of the issues then.
4: Why hasn't the government looked at that?
6: Well, it's, it is considering it. That's an issue I raised with the Taoiseach and the doll. I remember a couple of uh, months ago, and he said he was going to give fair consideration to it. But, like, we do need to do something. And other issues we've looked at is in terms of maybe trying to up the age. You can't apply to the Gardaí if you're over 35 years of age. There are many people in their late 30s, early 40s, who want a more interesting career, and they could go into the Gardaí for 10, 20 years, do a very good job. So we just need to be a bit more imaginative and innovative to try to get the numbers up, because it could be come across.
7: Jim sounds like he has ideas there, maybe just the government aren't listening to him. Yeah, well, I mean, Jim is here to represent the government and, you know, you, you, you don't get to be in opposition and in government at the same time, much and all as they do try. But I think it's, um, you know, one of the things that kind of jumped out at me from the from the documentary, the morale levels among uh economy, Shea they must be on the floor. If you're going out every night to face that the morale levels must be on the absolute floor. Now, I'd like to see when Antoinette Cunningham made the point that uh, oh, there were 109 resignations in the last year from Angarda Shiakana. Now, traditionally, and you know the, the, the gentleman beside me here will correct me if I'm wrong on this, but traditionally, a guard, being a guard was a job for life. So, you know, the people resigning is quite unusual. I'd like to know how many exit interviews were done. Is the government being proactive about retaining people in Angarda Siakana? I don't think they are. I mean, one of the Mm. things that Sinn Féin had proposed, and we put 2.5 million aside as part of our alternative budget, was to actually focus on establishing a dedicated unit within Angarda Siakana. So that's focusing on the recruitment and also with with a plan to staff it up to ensure that people are safe on public transport. And that's something that the government should be making a real commitment to, and they're not, and they should. And again, Jim has said about the uh, retirement age, he can support Sinn Féin's abolition of uh, mandatory retirement legislation, which we tabled two years ago and you know things can be done it's not simply a case that the government can just commentate about what has gone wrong they can actually be proactive. Yeah um, I just want to go to um, Ankal, who is standing by
4: on uh, Skype this evening also um, featured in the documentary because one of the other things that um, came through I think very strongly in the documentary among many of the participants was this sense that the victims suffer and the perpetrators get away with it or that they get off to easily. And I know that was certainly your feeling, Ankle, after the experience that you had on the Lewis in Dublin. Very briefly, if you don't mind, tell me what happened to you.
3: Yeah, so I was just travelling back to my home after work and um, I took the Green Line Lewis and um, in the middle of the way, somewhere near Harcourt Street, so there were these three teenage girls who were sitting beside me and they just attacked me suddenly. And it was just so, so like, what is it, just out of nowhere, it was just so sudden. And uh, they threw popcorns at my face. And I was on my phone and I didn't realize like at the very first minute and they just asked me to just get out. I tried to recollect like maybe I it, it would have been just like if I have misheard it, and I, I just say, like, I'm so sorry, but what do you mean? So they like, just get out. And then they're just starting you know, abusing me, throwing popcorns and hitting me. And, and like I would say, the luggage was also completely full. It was like half five in the evening, and that's a busy time. They are coming back from their work. And everyone was witnessing there, but I think that's a very common sight in, in the public transport. So. No-one actually stood up there. Okay. And, uh, these ladies, uh, these shows they started, you know, throwing uh, popcorn and just hitting me, kicking me with uh, with their
4: All right, sorry, Anshah, I just... think you're... Um, sorry to cut across you there. I think we're having some difficulty uh, with your audio, but I got the gist of what you were saying. It was a completely, uh, run an unprovoked attack, but the people who were responsible for this were minors and therefore nothing happened is the feeling that Anshal has. And she has now started a petition with her husband, which has got thousands of signatures, to try and increase, as um, was the level of punishment for those who are under 18. Do you agree that that is an issue for Gardy not being able to, to, to punish in some way those who maybe assault or hurt other people and they're under 18 years of age?
5: Well, uh, the, the Gardaí have a JLO system in place, a juvenile liaison system, and that mm-hmm. works well, uh, so it does. Really, it's a matter for the judiciary how uh, if matters come before the court, after they come out of the JLO system, they will go to the children's court, and then they will go to the main mm-hmm. courts. And that would be a matter for the judiciary. The guardie's job is to bring them uh, to, 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 mm-hmm. to that step in the process and, and after that, uh, the, you know, there's obviously certain circumstances in various cases. Um, yes, it, it is difficult um, 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 at times, but, um, you know, the, the, ju- the, ju- the juvenile liaison system does work well. And, you know, it does community engagement from community and care. The early intervention does work well in a lot of cases, not in all cases, as we as we oh, yeah. see from this example. But it it, does w- it was out. an
4: issue, I think, that you brought up too, Tom, was not it, that your members who've been assaulted felt that the punishment wasn't severe enough, that it was not acting as a deterrent. You want to see more minimum sentencing brought yeah, in.
8: That, that's correct, And I know uh, uh, Minister Harris increased the top end risk but that's really no use. I've had men and women seriously physically assaulted uh, and the perpetrators in two months and three months and... and, and that's just no use, because it is now deterrent. I mean, they go up in front of the bar and, and play the sob star of you and get a, a shortened sentence. Or, you, know, you want a, a deterrent that will actually walk uh, a stiff sentence for attacking frontline workers, guards, nurses, railway, men, railway women, uh, bus drivers. If, if you get a sentence that's severe enough, it'll soon uh, put a stop to their, their, their gallop. And, yeah, and... Do
4: you believe that's the case, Tony, that these more severe sentences, again, a real feature, I think, of this documentary, do act as a deterrent. Because I did look today at our recidivism rates in Ireland, and I think about 50% of people who have been in prison are back in prison within yeah. the year. And I wonder if sentencing is the answer, if it has a deterrent well, effect I, I, that I think like to it give should you
0: a, have. I'd like to give you a very realistic uh, example of where the presence of the Guardi was absolutely valuable. And in my current role with Ashley Risk Group, I attend all instances of robbery in a lot of the retail environments that we um, look after. But there was a particular suspect that in, went into a shop on the South Inner City uh, about two weeks ago, and within two hours, he was identified by the guardie and arrested. Now, it turned out there was a catalogue of stuff behind him. He was actually out on bail while he committed on offence. So that's kind of an issue in relation to allowing people on bail...
5: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. In this instance, he was romantic and costly, which even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
0: so um it it was recognized then but i'll give you another example there where there was um um a group of young people um who are known to me walking up o'connell street about 10 p.m at night and they were um in jovial good form as they're entitled to be and they were accosted by drug addicts and they were going to be robbed but in this incident, lucky enough it was two guardy on the beat and that's the that's value. That's the difference. That's the value. And, and what I would be calling for, and I know Jim is aspirational there about the transport police and whatever, but it's not at the cost of the hemorrhage from the core mm-hmm. unit of the uniformed police in Dublin. And as I said before, that's the barometer where policing is, is, is judged. Mm-hmm. So I think when we have the labour, yes, I think it's a very good idea that we diversify where we put our people to. But if I can just kind of emphasise the value of having them... So I'm calling for more... Would you more agree gar- with
4: that, as was Jim, Lazarus, to you? It, it's really about more boots on oh, the yeah, ground, absolutely. more visible police presence in this country. That's what we need. Not... To- Minimum sentencing for, for assaults of frontline workers? Listen, the,
6: the, there can't be just one solution, but certainly top of the list I would have is to try and get more Guardi out in the street. We saw when President Biden was here, there were guards everywhere. And what, and are, the, what lot- are the
4: government, just briefly, Jim, what are the government going to do if they don't hit the target of a 1,000 this year? And nobody I've spoken to within the guardies mm. seems to think that they are. What are they going to do about that? First of all, are they going to take responsibility for that?
6: Well, of course they're going to take responsibility. The money's been provided. Usually the criticism from opposition people is that the government isn't providing sufficient resources for it. We have provided. The resources but like we're in a society now where we're finding it difficult to recruit the thousand people that we've provided the money for so we're going to I think I'd say we'd be lucky to get 600 this year is my own assessment of it to date. and we're gonna to have to start looking at other measures whether it's extending the retirement age or else uh, upping the the age limit when people can apply or so says asking the question why they're
4: not joining the guards in the first place well listen
6: it's a different environment to what it was 20 30 years ago there's we're in a country with full employment there are so many good options out there for people that sometimes people just say to themselves there's more to be, as well as they think there's other careers available to them which wouldn't have been available years ago. And as well as they're looking at the Guardian, they may be looking at the programmes tonight saying, do I need that level of hassle?
7: I don't accept that, Jim. It's a good job and it's a job we absolutely need. And I think the government shouldn't no, give up on that. trying to recruit members of vanguardia Siakana. I think they should actually be looking at why. It's not an attractive place to work and they should be making it an attractive place to work.
4: All right, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Anshul, uh, Ronan, Tony and Tom. Jim and Louise are going to be staying with me. And next, the pres president's apology over part of his neutrality remarks. Do stay with us. You're very welcome back. Jim and Louise are still here with me and I'm also joined on Skype by Jennifer Kavanagh, lecturer in law at Southeast Technological University. You're very welcome to the programme. Uh, the President has apologised for any offence he caused by making what he said was a throwaway remark about the chair of a forum on international security. Michael D. Higgins made the remarks in an interview with the Business Post newspaper on Ireland's neutrality. He also said Ireland is playing with fire and warned against drifting into other people's agendas. I want to go to you um, first, Dr Kavanagh. Do you see what the president said as a commentary on government policy? Is that what this is?
1: I would see it more as reinforcing what's actually there in the international relations article in Article 29 of the constitution which is stating that we adhere to the peaceful and friendly cooperation and the Pacific settlement of disputes. Now, we don't necessarily mention neutrality in the Constitution itself. And bear in mind, that the president does take an oath to uphold the Constitution. So you could look on his comments as reinforcing that. And yes, I mean, people can also make the argument that he was possibly going into the realms of government policy as well. But he is a citizen of the state, and like any citizen, he does have a right to his own convictions and opinions as well.
4: There has been a long-standing tradition, though, in this country, hasn't there, that presidents don't criticise government and that they don't comment on government policy. Is there anything in law that discusses this? When it comes to the president making
1: statements, it's He really only has to be in line with the Council of State and the government when it comes to using, his, say, broadcasting time on national media or convening a joint meeting of the Houses of the Oireachtas. So that's where he is specifically limited. And I take what you're saying about the, the tradition, the convention, of not necessarily making public statements in a lower uh, level from the Houses of the Oireachtas, say, newspaper inches and the like. But it's not just Michael D. Higgins that has started this. This is something that has been happening from the time of Mary Robinson, Mary McAleese and Michael D. Higgins himself. And it's almost seen as an evolution of the office of the president from just the early foundations under the 1937 constitution, the likes of Eamon de Valera, Patrick Hillary in the office, where it was looked on in a way kind of disparagingly as a retirement home for politicians that had done well for the state to an office whereby they feel that they have their own views and to a certain extent within the boundaries of not causing absolute and utter consternation that they are that bit more confident of putting forward their, their own views. In a limited frame, because they can't be jumping in and out every five minutes because the government would just never be able to get on with doing its job.
4: Do you accept as suppose, Jennifer, that the boundaries are being pushed here in terms of what the role of the President of Ireland is?
1: Except for the fact that the only boundaries that are there are clearly uh, demarcated in the Constitution when it comes to, say, travelling abroad and the like. If we are saying that the the president shouldn't be saying anything at all, that's not necessarily what's there in the Constitution. And every officeholder is going to bring their own slant to what they feel the office should do.
4: All right. Let me just put um, what you've said to the politicians here. Jennifer Canaffin is saying basically he's well within his right to make these comments as somebody who's defending Article 29 and as a sort of citizen of the state. And I've noticed nobody in politics today has really come out and criticised uh, President Higgins for these comments. And it's not the first time that mm-hmm. he has made comments on what could be seen as government policy. Are politicians afraid... Jim I, to
6: criticise I don't James. know, but uh, I'm not going to criticise him, but the reason I'm not going to criticise him is because, not because I'm afraid of criticising him. I think he is entitled to come out and make public statements. As Jennifer alluded to there, under the Constitution, under Article 13.7, the President, after consulting with the Council of State, can address the houses of the Oireachtas and the nation on matters of public or national importance. So I don't see why he shouldn't be allowed to speak the way he did uh, last Sunday in respect of an issue which is of public and national importance. However, I disagree with him. I think he was uh, wrong in stating that this is an attempt by government to move the country away from military neutrality. Military neutrality has served the country well. It's a policy of all the parties in government and it's a policy that I think we'll be sticking with. But I suppose one of the downsides of the President... But should
4: there be any sort of limitations at all on what the President can comment about? I
6: I don't have any... uh, desire to put limitations on it. I think an individual president will decide, him or herself, where they should go. The downside of, I suppose, a president coming out repeatedly mm-hmm. is that you then enter the fray and you can make mistakes for which you need to apologize. Subsequently. Which we've seen this evening. And also, secondly, if you do come into the political fray as a president, you know politicians are entitled to answer back. And that's why I think the Taunches was perfectly entitled mm-hmm. to issue a statement Jesse in response to it. So I have no difficulty with the president coming out, making the statement that he did. I think he was wrong in respect of it. I think politicians are entitled to answer back. But I think that's suppose, the important issue is that we're discussing defence and military neutrality. And I believe military neutrality is a core principle of Fianna Fáil. And it's a principle we'll be defending in government.
4: OK, is he expanding the scope of this office? And is that what the Irish people want from a president? Maybe he
6: is. And if he is, every office is going to expand with the passage of time. And if he is expanding it, he's perfectly entitled to try to mould it in his direction. Whoever becomes the next president may decide to do it differently, may decide not to speak out publicly. But let that be the decision for whoever is president. We don't want to put somebody up in the park who's confined and we don't want to hear from them. Mm-hmm. Let them mould the office in the way they've done. And we've had a series of presidents, all the way back to Paddy, Hillary and before, who've moulded the office in their own way. Some of them will get more attention later on, but I think they need to be entitled to mould the office in their own way in accordance with the Constitution. And the Constitution gives them sort of broad parameters as to what and when they can say.
4: Um, Louise, he did... Um apologised today to Professor Louise Richardson for the comments he made Mm -hmm. um, about her. She's, of course, the chair of this forum. He said that she had a very large DBE, Dame of the British Empire, beside her name and um, that he could have thought of other perhaps people um, who might have been more suitable for the role. He apologised for that. He said it was a throwaway Mm -hmm. comment. Is that part of the difficulty here, as Jim alluded to, that the more you engage as president on matters, be it housing, be it neutrality, be it the economy, Mm -hmm. be it migrants, whatever it is, that you, you run the risk, I suppose, of bringing the office into disrepute by, by making these throwaway remarks?
7: OK, so I don't think anyone brought any office into disrepute, but I do think, um, you know, when... Well, was he President, wrong with what he said about Professor Richardson? But when President Higgins called the housing situation created by government policy a disaster... Politicians didn't challenge him on it. Government politicians didn't challenge him on it because he was right and he was reflecting what people think. So when he cautions, and I don't think that that he was very explicit uh, in, in, in what he said, what he cautioned against was a drift away from neutrality. Poll after poll shows us that Irish people value our neutrality. It should be enshrined in our constitution. And that's a, a debate that we should have. But there is a drift. It was recognized by President Michael D. Higgins. And I do think he was right to make comment on it. And I okay, think Okay, also- even though I
4: suppose Jim McCollins saying that's not the case, the Taoiseach and the Tarnisher came out and it's the Tarnisher's forum. He said, Fianna Fáil are not looking to move away from our position of military neutrality. It has never been about that. It's a conversation mm. about security, defence, neutrality. It's
7: more than just this drift away from um, our military neutrality. And they keep saying it and they keep saying it and they keep saying it. So and, you don't believe uh, them either. When the, uh, well, you know, the, the expression, uh, when you're explaining you're losing, didn't come about by nothing. They have completely had to come out and defend their position. So what the president was doing was he was highlighting an issue that is a really, really important, important issue to Irish people Our neutrality really matters think. to you, people you can. and can. I think it, you know it should be enshrined in the constitution but what, so what if
4: he'd come out Louise and said I'm supporting our move towards NATO would you have any difficulty with the president's making that type
7: of comment but he didn't, and, you know, I mean, we're here talk about... What, no, yeah, no, no but he didn't, and all, so all I can comment on is... the boundaries is, yes, of the office. And all I can comment on is what he said, and what he did, I don't think he explicitly interfered in government policy. I think what he was doing was he was cautioning against a drift away from neutrality, right. and I so do I just think say, uh, that there sorry, are people sit on, sitting on the government benches who would like to see us go in that direction. I don't think that that is the majority view, and poll after poll supports okay, that. Let me
6: just let uh, uh, me Louise is wrong about Fianna Fáil moving away from our core principles of military neutrality. And in fact, if there's been any drift on the issue of defence policy in recent times, it's been from Sinn Féin, who've changed their policy on PESCO and Partnership for Peace. This time last year, they were opposed to both of them. They said there were an interference in Irish neutrality. Mm-hmm. Today, they support them.
4: All right, look, I'm okay. going to have to leave it there. Sorry, Louise, we've run out of time. We'll, that's very um, but we'll get back to that yeah. issue. My thanks to Jennifer, to Jim and to Louise. We're going to have to leave it there. Next, former minister Pat Carey on the emotional and mental impact of a Garda leak to the media. Do stay with us. back. Former Government Minister Pat Kerry has said the damage to his good name will never be fully repaired, despite a Garda apology over a leaking controversy. Garda apologised to the High Court for the distress the former Fianna Fáil TD suffered after information in relation to a Garda investigation appeared in the media in 2015. And Pat Carey joins me here in studio. You're very welcome to the programme, Pat. Thanks, um, Those allegations were made in 2015 and appeared in the media there, as we said. The DPP said in 2019, four years later, that there was no case to answer. And now, in 2023, on Friday, you secured this apology from the Garda Commissioner and substantial damages. You've had a couple of days, I suppose, to digest all of that now. How do you feel about this entire episode at this point?
2: Well, look, there is an inevitable sense of relief uh, that, uh, that you know, you go... You, you, you long for and you enjoy um I suppose the deadline was i knew was approaching reasonably quickly uh, mediation had been agreed, and you know that that the, the the final arrangement uh however limited it was uh was was hammered out you know relatively quickly so uh, I, I i had a couple of days to. Get used to the idea that there would be something like this going around the tour of the the studios and uh, talking to people. Um, you, look, uh, I'm in, I'm enjoying the newfound freedom. There's no point in saying otherwise. And people that I have met uh, who would have recognised me, they're very warm and welcoming and wishing me good luck and 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 so on and it's it's good but that that will only last so far and uh, you know the 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 stain or the remains of (coughs) this allegation won't ever go away Uh, but i'm going to move on with my life i've always done that Uh, and i'll continue with uh, the kind of work that i've been doing all my life which is working with you with people of all, of all ages, and, enjoy, and enjoying it. Um, I won't be around for, forever, probably for not much longer, so I'll, I'll, I'll make the best of it. Uh,
4: How has it impacted your life over the last eight years? Have you been able to live a normal life, as it were? Uh,
2: in some ways, it, 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 it's as you go along, you, you, you find ways of, of, of dealing with it early on. It was being terrified to go out. Uh, you, you kind of... I remember walking down um, Jervis Street one day and uh, I heard, oh, yeah, Pat... I, I, I said, well, there's probably something else to follow that now. Uh, <laughs> maybe a, a, a haranguing slogan or something like that. Um, but your, your ability to, to deal with phases, I think, uh, depend on the amount of thought and um, positive thought that you can put together. Um, I, I was advised early on to, to seek counselling uh, and I did and I got, uh, I worked closely with a, a really good psychotherapist and I have to say I would advise anybody who has uh, a wobbly patch uh, to Talk to somebody like that uh, who has a sense of what you 're going through and has a good idea of what it might look like at the other side. Uh, then I, I, I kept myself busy, uh, because I'm, I was always that, that kind of kind of person, uh, and be, being busy with work in the, the, the um, Irish Red Cross, Lord and Ile the drugs task forces, uh, a whole range of activities that I had been involved in. And I got got back involved in those because people asked me to have a, a reasonable level of, level of experience and expertise in, in that area. So that, that that kept me going and it kept me very, very positive. I was surrounded by amazingly positive people, you know, the... the, the To this day, they'll say, we always knew you were innocent. Mm -hmm. Well, I said, I'm not sure that uh, I'd agree with you that everybody thought it. But um, that that kind of encouragement and that kind of support Mm -hmm. certainly was very, very valuable. And uh, I I, I won't ever forget it.
4: And you say that you know, not everybody might believe that you are innocent. Do you still feel that today? Do you feel these allegations Look, will always overshadow the, the, your the, life the phrase, and maybe your legacy?
2: The phrase, there's never, there's never smoke without fire. There, there will always be somebody uh, who will say, ah, yeah, sure. it's because he was well got and he, he could afford to pay uh, good lawyers and all that, that kind of thing. Uh, I'd like to think that, that that's a very tiny minority. And from what I can hear, uh, it is a tiny minority. Uh, and I wouldn't uh, be casting aspersions on their view. I would, I would think that maybe that over time they would come to the conclusion that he, yeah, he's a decent guy. Uh, he he did his best, uh, and uh, he deserves uh, you know a hearing.
4: For you, Pat, what was the toughest part of all of this?
2: The early part was extraordinarily tough because. Uh, the thing, the, the, the news came as a bold out of the blue.
4: And do you feel your friends and your family have been very negatively impacted by all of this?
2: Uh, if they have, they haven't told me much about it. Uh, I, I think my friends and my family have man, managed quite well. My friends and many others are well able to give back as hard as they get. Now, there, there was a period where I I think my mental health must've got quite wobbly, but I had a period when I had these really violent nightmares uh, for a period of about three months. Now, I got uh, got a a professional to to, to deal with those as well and touch wood, Uh, all of that kind of disturbance in my mind is put to bed and was put to bed well before Uh, the the decision. I suppose the uh, crossing point if you like from being worried to being reasonably reasonably positive was when we got word that the DPP had decided that I had no case to answer Mm. because we had been left uh, hanging uh, from the time the file uh, went to the DPP to a decision well over a year, nearly two years before that, uh, and uh, you—you—you always, at least I do anyway—you always think the worst.
4: Do you think this has changed you as a person, Pat?
2: I hope not. Uh, I, I think probably I may have got more resilient. Uh, I can roll with the punches. I think a bit better. Um, i i i would like to think that. I don't, I don't go around feeling sorry for myself, even with the positive outcome. Uh, you know, I, I've been, for the, for the last while, I've, I've been able to get on with my life quite well, mainly because an awful lot of people have kept me awfully busy. Uh, I haven't had a chance to, to be uh, navel-gazing to any great extent.
4: Well, Pat Carey, we're delighted to have you here in studio and to see you back out and about again. Thanks for speaking it's to a us today. It's pleasure this evening. to be here, thanks. Well, that's it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can also now find us on Instagram and TikTok tonight, VMTV. But from all of the late team here, good night and do take care.